the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Abounding Grace, as we begin the week, we do so looking at the repentance of Job, understanding God's discourse with him towards the end of this amazing book. Abounding Grace is next. As one looks at the repentance of Job here in chapter 42 of Job, you can't help but think of the encounter that Peter has with Jesus when Jesus has him catch all those fish. Peter knows that this is God, and he tells him to depart from him because he's a sinful man. Now, Jesus didn't have to accuse Peter. He didn't have to challenge Peter with his sin. All he did was reveal himself, and Peter knew. The same is what we see here in Job. God doesn't reprove Job. He doesn't correct him. He doesn't challenge his sin. He simply reveals himself to Job. And that was enough. The challenge, the application for you and I today is, do we do the same with God? Do we know God's holiness enough to keep us constantly bowed before him in humble repentance? Well, let's catch up with Pastor Gary Wagner as we learn more on today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. I have prayed Psalm 25, 9 many, many times. It says, forgive me for not being teachable before you, for being willful, for being peevish, for not liking it when life doesn't go my way. Now here is the blessing for the meek, Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be thee not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. What a contrast. I remember as a young man, my mom telling me, stop being a mule head. Of course, I asked her, what is a mule head? And she said it was a Mideastern term for someone who was stubborn. And we see that actually here on our text. You can't get a mule to do anything unless you put a bit in its mouth and a whip in your hand. The Lord says, don't be like a mule. Don't be like a horse. Is that you? God has to take you kicking and snorting. Do you have parents you don't listen to because you think, oh, I'm 17 years old and I'm just as smart as a whip. I hate to tell you, but at 17, you don't know Jack Squat. I didn't either. And the Lord says to us, don't be like a mule. Instead, be meek and teachable. And I'll add to that so you don't take offense, young people. I'm 67 and I still don't know much. Paul says... If anyone says he knows anything as he ought, he knows nothing. 
And that's each one of us. That is why the Lord here promises, I will instruct you. Isn't that a great promise? Wouldn't you like to know that everything that happens to you in your life is God? God is going to follow you and teach you. And boy, at the end of verse 8, isn't that a great encouragement? I will guide you with my eye. Did your mom or dad ever give you the evil eye, a raise of the eyebrow and that stare? The Lord says, I'm just going to give you a nod. I'm just going to look over there, and it's just figurative speech, but it is beautiful. And you're just going to want to go because I'm instructing you and I'm teaching you. And I have made your heart pliable before me. So let me encourage you again. Be in the word. Ask God to open your mind to the glorious things that he has done and is doing. If you are a tamed man, God will use you in your home. I promise you. If you are a tamed wife, remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. A meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, a great price. Do you hear that? There are not many things in Scripture that are said to be in God's sight of great value, but a meek and a quiet and a teachable spirit. And that's what we see in Job in chapter 42.4. He just says, Lord, I beg you to teach me. I'm going to listen. I've been talking too much. Now, why does Job come to this? He says in verse 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but of the ear, but now my eyes have seen thee. What? That's a difficult verse. I have to confess this because it may seem on the surface to contradict what Scripture everywhere teaches that the just walks by faith, not by seeing. And Job would seem to be saying here, Lord, I've heard, but now I see. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, Job didn't see God. For Jesus said, remember in John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who was in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him through Himself. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.18, who no man has seen or can see, He is the invisible, the only wise God. Now, it's certain that God appeared to Job in the whirlwind, which was a visible representation of His glory. But then what did God do to Job? He talked to him. He gave him his word. He asked him questions. It was God speaking to Job that caused Job to finally see him who was invisible. Now that's interesting because in Exodus 33, Moses prays, Lord, show me your glory. God says, Moses, are you a fool? No one can see my glory and live. Okay, well, I'll hide you in a rock because I don't want you using your eyes. So the Lord in chapter 34, verse 6 of Exodus, passes before Moses, and Moses says, The Lord, the Lord God, gracious, mighty, full of compassion, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. So what am I saying here? It's not that seeing God is metaphorical. It means that the eyes of our understanding are being opened as we read his, read his word and hear it preached. Through God's words to Job, Job's eyes were opened. 
He saw God's glory and his majesty and his omnipotence and his infinite knowledge. Those things were pressed upon Job with a clarity he had not previously had. And I think that is the comparison here of the hearing and the seeing. Job said, I've heard. I knew some lessons about you, but Lord, you have come to me now and you've revealed your glory to me in your word and in these questions more clearly. So I believe the lesson in verse 5 is, if we are to see God, we must hold fast to his word. When we come to his word, we must pray for our eyes to see, because this is the way we only see God. By the way, this is the way you endure as well. Do you know that living in the United States of America in 2018, Hebrews 27.11 has to be true of you. You have to see God who is invisible. That is the only way that the splendor of Egypt or America will not ruin your soul. That is, the way, that is the only way that the threats of man will not terrify you. You must see him who is invisible. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4 where he said, While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. How do we look at things that we can't see? We have God's words. And when our hearts are held captive to his words, when we don't allow the preaching of his word to just ring about in our heads, but we take it into our hearts, that's why our confession says in the Shorter Catechism, when you come to the word, you need to pray for understanding. You need to pray to receive the word with reverence and meekness. That is how we have to come to the Word, if you truly want to see God. Saturday evenings, my friends, ought to be serious prayer times in our families. Excuse me, not movie night. We must come and say, Lord, you are giving us your Word tomorrow. Let it take a hold of our hearts. Every morning actually ought to be those times. Lord, teach me. I'm so sleepy today, so tired. So much of the world's dust is just clinging to me. Will you please come and teach me? Now, the Lord does this in incredible ways. You know, you young people can have a thousand lessons in your home and be a covenant child. And it's like God hands you a, his word on this silver platter. He says, here, Danielle. Here, Joseph, here, Jesse, here's my word. I'm just going to give my word to you on a silver platter. And all your days, you're never going to know a time when you have to walk in blindness at all. And yet, if we don't improve on the word, and we don't take it in, and listen to it, and apply it, and pray over it, we hear but we don't hear. We see, but we don't see. Maybe it's the world. Maybe it's the opinion of our friends. Maybe it's our own attitude or our own appetites that get to us more than God and His Word. What do we do? You're in danger of what I did. Spitting on God. I said, Lord, thanks, but no thanks for your word. I would rather walk in my own way. So what are you supposed to do? 
you know who you are, and God knows more importantly. So what are we supposed to do? What Job did, take encouragement. Job was a godly man, and he recognizes there in verse 5, I had these lessons already. I heard them. I planned my life by them at some level. But now that God has come to me with his word, and he's humbled my heart, now I do truly see. I see God's glory. Blessed pray for God to show you his glory. Every Sunday on your way to church, get into the habit before you get out of your car. Pray quickly, God, show me your glory. Show the church your glory. Show the nations your glory. Show this nation your glory. Show us wondrous things out of your law, O Lord, because if you don't, we will fall sound asleep. And then we will be judged, as Jesus said, for how we hear and didn't improve. So Joe comes down to the end in verse 6, and he says, Therefore, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. How do we really know that we are God's loyal friends and obedient children and his faithful servants? Job shows us. Up until God has revealed himself more clearly to Job, Job has been defending his integrity. Now, I want to be clear about this. As we move forward to the end, Job was a godly man. I have said this over and over. But remember how God threw him into Satan's teeth? Have you seen my servant Job? He is an upright man, and he fears me. So then, Lord, why did you throw him into the fire? The Lord says, because he may be an upright man. He, he may fear me, but he's not a perfect man. And plus, I'm going to trounce this worm, Satan, again by using my weak servant. And, and then I'm going to let Job fall. But he will repent and he is going to turn to me and he will loathe himself. Yet Job has been defending his integrity. Lord, why are you doing to this to me? It's not fair. But now he loathes himself in light of God's glory. And this loathing is, isn't a sign of an inferior complex or a sick mind, my friends. I want to tell you something. Self-hatred is healthy. As a matter of fact, only those who have a sense of the grossness of their sins before God and are honest about their filth, they are the only sane men there are. That is why as Christians, when you listen to people talking, and we're going to hear a lot of debates over the next few months during this political season, a lot of people are going to be talking, and people are going to be talking about their talking, and people will, will talk about people who are talking and it's going to go on and on and on. And you're going to think, all of these men are insane? Yes. Why? Because most of them do not hate themselves. Most of them are full of themselves. Full of their own plans. Full of their own, hey, I can save the country, the state, the environment, education. You can if you just elect me, I'll get the country back on the road to recovery. You will? You've got to be kidding me. Everyone who has come along for the last 100 years have come with the same pompous windbag promises. Follow me, and I'll make this country a better place. You see, Job teaches us here 
There is no sanity unless our self-love is broken. Daniel, he was a godly man. And he set him seriously in Daniel 9 to seek the Lord by prayer and fasting. And it says to us, to him, Daniel belongs confusion. Daniel, Daniel admits he doesn't know anything. Can you imagine that? Daniel, by the way, was second in command of one of the most powerful empires the world has ever known. And he said, I don't know anything. Confusion of faces belongs to us because we have broken your commandments, God. This certainly isn't like our leaders. Did any of our leaders this week stand up and say, hey, I'm, I'm so confused. Now, some of them certainly sounded confused. Now, they may have been laughed at, but that is what Daniel did, and he was a godly statesman. John on Patmos, he had the privilege of reclining on Jesus' breast in the upper room, and he sees a little bit more the glory of Christ. And what does he do? He falls down like a dead man. Isaiah was already a prophet, and at some level, when God showed him his glory, Isaiah said, hey, I'm basically a good man. I deserve to come to God and see him. Let me write a book about how God appeared to me in my plate of spaghetti. No, he said, woe is me. I have sinned. It was some type of visible representation that he saw, maybe a vision, maybe a dream of the throne room of God. And Isaiah didn't say, boy, I'm basically a good person. He said, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm unclean. We have lost all of this today. Well, maybe not all of it. There are godly men who are preaching this, but when God brings us to repentance, please listen closely. We don't see ourselves as good. We are not at rest with our badness. We go to God with our filth and we ask him to cleanse us according to his mercy. Truthfully, we don't really feel our sinfulness unless we run to Jesus Christ. We can talk about it, oh, I'm a bad person. But that is really looking for sympathy. We really don't feel our sinfulness unless we confess our nothingness before God or our vileness before Him. We abhor ourselves and then we run to Him for mercy and for grace. It's an odd thing to be a Christian. I mean, other religions know nothing of this. When you're out in the world, people say, well, all religions are basically the same. Nonsense. I know of no one who has ever read about the necessity to adhere to the strict demands of various other religions and said, in my own power, I can do this. They may believe they can, but it's only the ignorant that say anything like this. The Christian religion is in a category by itself because on the one hand, the high and the holy, the majestic God whom Scripture says has to humble himself to see what happens on earth. And then on the other hand, before him, I am filthy. But on the other hand, he says, come to me and I will cleanse you. Do you know of any other religion like that? This is wonderful. The gospel of Jesus Christ is wonderful. Here's the holy God who has seen our filth. And we deserving to go to hell forever. And he says, you know what? I'm going to strike down my own holy son and save you wretched sinners. It is marvelous. 
marvelous, my friends. The reason, again, I think the church is in the boat that she's in, in this country, has nothing to do with how strong the wicked actually are. It has nothing to do with all the television we may watch. It has nothing to do with pornography. The issue is we have lost a sense of wonder at God. And thus we do not hate our own filthiness. But when we recover it, we will be humbled and then we will be joyful. We will be made meek and teachable and God will lead us. And we won't make so many foolish decisions because he will be with us. Now, the last thing I'd like to mention is that Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. Now, this could just be the state he was already in, because remember, he was covered in ashes. But it could mean that he was throwing it up in the air over his head. I wouldn't necessarily make a lot out of this, except not to treat the dust and ashes metaphorically, because I don't think they are intended in that way. But when we repent, there are signs of that. If we were immodest, we become modest. If we were profane in our speech, we become pure in our speech. If we fulfill a lust, we become filled with the desire for purity. If we're ugly in our mood to our wives, we become kind and a servant to them. If we belittled and battered our husbands verbally, we become encouraging and a helpmeet. Paul calls this in Ephesians 4, a putting on, or a putting off, and a putting on. Now, I don't want to treat dust and ashes as metaphorical, but it is important. And Job here shows us being repentant is not just saying, I'm sorry. Has this ever happened to you? And maybe your wife or your husband got into your face, and you said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry, but there's no real repentance. Saying I'm sorry is not repentance. Repentance is when out of a sense of hatefulness and the ugliness of our sins before God, we turn to Him because of His promise of mercy. And then we forsake those sins and we put on His righteousness, which our Lord Jesus Himself closes us with. You know, people say, I'm far too gone to repent. Really? Really? Paul murdered Christians and God brought him to repentance. Paul told the Corinthians, hey, some of you were sodomites, some of you were lesbians, some of you were fornicators, adulterers, you were filthy, but you are washed, you are cleansed, you are sanctified and justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there is always the danger of making our sins too little in our own eyes so that we're not terrified by them and then run to God. But there's also a danger of making our sins so big and in our pride we think, I'm too far gone. And it becomes kind of like a badge of honor. I'm the rebel. God can't possibly love me. Really? Don't be a fool. God says, I am your Savior. And I will blot out your iniquities. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be free of the guilt and the agony? Repentance brings with it a little bit of a sense of, I know what I am and it's not good. And someday at some level, you do abhor yourself. 
Because you see your pride and it's so ugly. Your self-love, your lust. But there's something else. You see the beauty of Jesus and the loveliness of the gospel. So you say, I am going to repent. I'm going to turn to the Lord and seek his mercy and ask him to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And that is, his name is Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408 866-5607. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner.